and welcome to the 14th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comedian Dr Kim Lee. And today we're bringing you the podcast because we want to become screen time superheroes. <laughs> we want to help you and your family make better decisions around screens. Yep. And we want to use research to do it. Yep. And so what have we got lined up for today's episode, Liz? Today on the show, you're going to hear a review of Daddy Daycare and an interview with Ian Warren, who researches the Internet of Things. But first up, we've got... Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out and demystify it so that we can inform your family's decisions on how you engage with screens. Mm -hmm. Today, we're discussing a paper which came out of a collaboration between Chinese and German scholars about the positive effects of pro-social games. So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research out of China and Germany about something we haven't talked about much yet on the podcast, positive effects of media use. And in this case, we're talking about pro-social games. Kim, why did they do this research? We all want to know whether video games actually make our kids more aggressive or whether video games can make our kids more pro-social. Mm, or, yeah. or which games do which. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Kim, tell us which is the best game for mm. our kid to play. Mm. The main problem is that usually the most popular games have that element of excitement and competition mm. and aggression and, you know, beating down on someone <laughs> and being aggressive. Whereas mm -hmm. some of those more pro-social games, they're kind of boring. Okay. Oh, so what do we do about that? Well, let's dive into this particular piece of research. How did they do it? How did they go about their research? Well, they looked at preschoolers, mm -hmm. so essentially my own child's age. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing, you know, You know, we have our weekly meeting and i got to run off to take my child to kinder gym. Mm -hmm. It's amazing just observing my child interacting with other kids. Mm -hmm. And there's this one little boy who's so cute at that play area who uh, is very, very kind to towards my child. Uh, my child wanted the balloon that he had. And the child's like, here, have the balloon. Oh. And sharing, right? Yeah. And it's interesting to see your own child share in, in amongst um, that environment. So what this study did was that they went around to kindergartens, preschools, and found 120 kids, mm -hmm. 60 girls, 60 boys. Yep. And they gave them either a pro-social game, mm -hmm. a game where you're helping the character pick up rubbish. So that's right. a good thing, right? Yeah. And gave them the other um, option of playing a neutral game. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a, a, a violent game or an aggressive mm -hmm. game, but they gave them a neutral game or a puzzle game. Okay. And they wanted to find out, okay, does offering these children the pro-social game, will that make them more pro-social? Mm -hmm. Share stickers in this uh -huh. instance. Yeah, so they were given a certain number of stickers for playing the game well, and then they were basically invited to give the stickers to somebody. Okay, what'd they find? Well, they found that the mediating effect, so the connection mm -hmm. between playing the picking up rubbish game mm -hmm. is actually empathy, mm -hmm. whether they're a girl mm -hmm. and how old the child is. Ah, so what, younger kids are more likely to feel the effect of the game or older ones? Older ones are more likely to share the stickers. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Right? Yeah, that, that's certainly been my experience yeah. in, as a parent too. Yeah. Because this boy at the kinder gym is much older than my child and my child's you know, 
quite mm. young in in that group, mm-hmm. and we'll usually try and take balloons away from kids and. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. But also give high fives in, in return if, if they notice that the, the, the child is upset. <laughs> Sweet. So it does come down to empathy. Mm. So there's mm. what we call effective empathy. So mm-hmm. actually understanding that someone is emotionally upset. Mm-hmm. And then there's cognitive empathy. So understanding that someone thinks in a certain way. Mm. That takes a little while to develop. You're not, <laughs> you're not looking for that in a two or three-year-old, are you? Mm. Yeah. All right. So coming back to the finding... We're talking about mediation again. So this idea is that the mediator between playing the game and pro-social behaviour afterwards, well, there were three, weren't there? So there was being a girl, being older and... Empathy. And empathy. Okay. So did they test the kids for empathy too? Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. So anything surprising about that? We've already said uh, it sort of falls in with what we already know about children, but anything... Yeah. I guess they were saying that perhaps we should be offering children empathy-based programs actually teaching them about empathy and building that up Mm -hmm. and then when they do pro-social things like playing pro-social games they're more likely to behave in a way that's more desirable Mm -hmm. it sounds like building up children's empathy is a good thing anyway but i guess if they are going to be playing games and games and screens are going to be playing a, a large part in their lives which is the reality then what this research is telling us is that it's all the more important than ever that we do what we can to build up these ways of thinking, habits of mind and so on. So, yeah, interesting. Do you have any reservations about that finding? Anything not ring true to you or bother you? Like I said, who's really going to offer their kid to play a game where you're picking up rubbish, hmm. saving the planet? I mean, it sounds very good, but those types of games aren't really going to have the marketing to sell to children. Those pro-social games... Sure, some children will want to play them, but usually it's going to be girls who like to play those games. Mm -hmm. I don't think the average teenage boy was going to be interested in playing that Mm. game. Okay, so if you're out there and you've got a teenage boy or you know you're going to have a teenage boy before too long, then this kind of message might not help you terribly much other than to say, well, building up the empathy is probably going to help no matter what. Don't you think? Like, I'm sure if we came to the question of, okay, we've got 14 or 15-year-old playing violent games or games that are in other ways non-pro-social, if we've laid that foundation, then we can probably feel a little bit more relaxed about that. Yeah. 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 And as we keep on saying, you know, role modelling, you know, setting an example, all that kind of stuff. Will the finding affect your practice as a psychiatrist? I think it'll it'll affect the way I speak to families about these types of questions mm-hmm. and and really it reinforces the recommendations to work with a professional therapist mm-hmm. working on your child's feelings and how they express those feelings and how that relates to the people around them. Mm. Yeah, it's it's very complex, isn't it? And it seems to presuppose a level of understanding of how emotions work and so on and as a reasonably functional adult we all like to think that we have that understanding and I'm sure we do have a good understanding of emotions but if we really want to be able to navigate this complex media saturated world then having a bit of extra help and extra depth provided by a professional could be all to the good and how can it inform parenting or caring for children I guess we've already answered that in a way haven't we to say well help build up empathy no matter what Yeah, I think uh, balancing out the activity schedules. Mm -hmm. Don't just let your child play whatever video game by themselves. Mm -hmm. 
you want to include them in other activities, group activities, sports, art mm. lessons. Get out in nature. Get out in nature. Yeah. Face-to-face activities. Mm. Yeah, and starting from the youngest age to, to build up those habits and hopefully build up the interest so children are sort of intrinsically motivated to go and play tennis or bushwalk or ride their bike or whatever. Yeah, good. Okay, well, that's all been pretty good and it's been a nice change to be talking about um, the the nice things because so much of the research that comes out, understandably, is looking at the negative side. But this has all been quite sweet and nice to hear about your kinder gym experiences too. So we'll move on to the next segment now. Well, there were some very interesting tips from Kim about how to build up your child's empathy and the way that that can protect against maybe negative effects of gaming and build up positive effects. The paper was by Yan Lee, Tao Deng and Philip Kansky and the title is Effective Empathy Mediates the Positive Effect of Pro-Social Video Games on Young Children's Sharing Behaviour. It was published in the journal Cognitive Development. Full details in the show notes. And now it's time for our movie review and Hossein is going to tell us why Daddy Daycare is recommended for ages 5 and up. Hi, I'm Hussein Ismaili and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of Daddy Daycare. I'll tell you what the movie is about and what elements led the reviewers to recommend the film for children age 5 and up, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. Charlie is an advertising executive and father of Ben, age four. Charlie suddenly finds himself without a job. His wife had previously decided to return to work as a lawyer and they had enrolled Ben in an exclusive, ridiculously expensive childcare center where everyone wears a uniform, including the employees. Children are rigidly disciplined and are taught languages and martial arts, among other subjects, under the strict rule of Miss Harriden. After weeks of unsuccessfully trying to find another job, Charlie, while watching Ben playing in a playground with other children, hears one of the mothers casually remark on the need for a daycare center as an alternative to currently available preschools in the area. Charlie decides to open his own daddy daycare center with his friend Phil who was also retrenched. Daddy daycare is at first a disaster as Charlie and Phil have little to no idea about how to look after young children with chaos and much hilarity reigning for the first few days. However, as things settle down, more children start to come to the center and Charlie realizes that it isn't enough to just mind the children and that they need organized activities in a playful environment to make the care center worthwhile. Meanwhile, Miss Harriden is losing pupils and so gets the authorities involved to try and close the Daddy Day Care Center. This, in fact, has the opposite effect as Charlie and Phil continue to improve the center 
to meet the required standards. Daddy Daycare has to move into large premises and becomes a center where children can play and have fun while learning at the same time, much to the chagrin of Miss Harriden. This is when Charlie's old boss rings up to offer him his old job back at an increased salary and Charlie has to decide what is more important to him, the money or looking after the children. There is quite a bit of slapstick violence in the movie, including where a child karate kicks Phil in the groin, causing him to roll on the ground in pain, and a child kicks Charlie in the shins. There is also a scene where the children go berserk after eating junk food and have pillow fights, breaking objects in the room. There is nothing in the movie that would scare young children as such, but parents may like to know two scenes that could be troubling for some children. In one scene, when Ben's parents are looking for a cheaper childcare center, they are taken by an elderly couple around to the back of the house and one of them opens the cellar door implying that the children are kept shut in the cellar. In the other scene, one of the children's pets, a tarantula, escapes and it appears on Phil's head. This could be quite scary for children who are afraid of spiders. There are no sexual references, nudity or sexual activity and no coarse language. But a childcare worker is shown with a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. The take-home message in this movie is that children need a happy, caring, organized and fun environment to learn and grow in, not a highly controlled, regimented one. Values that parents may wish to encourage include love and nurture, and the fact that people are more important than possessions. On the other hand, there are quite a few examples of behavior that parents may wish to discourage, such as kicking, running on a piano, drinking bubble-blowing liquid and blowing bubbles out of your mouth, climbing up curtains, riding on a ride-on mower, having pillow fights, and pulling a downpipe off a wall. You might also find yourself needing to explain why Charlie and Phil are called names such as unnatural and queerous. Daddy Daycare is available on a number of different streaming platforms and the CMA reviewers recommend for children 5 and up parental guidance for under fives. There is a more detailed review of this and hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Hussein talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the movie reviews tab. Then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002. 
as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game-style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, facebook.com forward slash Australian Children in the Media, all one word. More details later on how to keep in touch and give feedback. And now it's time for Liz's interview with Ian Warren, a criminology researcher from Deakin University with the expertise on the Internet of Things, which might seem ironic considering we are a podcast about screens, but the connections will become clear later. I'm here today with Dr. Ian Warren, a senior lecturer in criminology at Deakin University and the author or co-author of a 2021 report called Enhancing Consumer Awareness of Privacy and the Internet of Things, which was the outcome of a project funded by the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network. I think I'm allowed to say that I was one of the people interviewed for that project. And in fact, I've got a suspicion as to which of the quotations came from me. Ian and I had a great conversation about IoT at that time, which is why my thoughts went to him when I decided we should cover it in the podcast. And Ian has very kindly agreed to make the time for this chat we're about to have. Ian, welcome to Outside the Screen. It's a pleasure, Liz, and thanks so much for the invitation. Nice to have you here. Now, we'll just start with a very general question. What is the Internet of Things and what are the unique functions of its components? The Internet of Things operates on the basis of installing sensors into everyday devices or everyday consumer goods. One of the examples that I like to bring up is uh, I went to buy a pair of running shoes a while ago and um, they had installed in them a, a set of sensors which allowed them to communicate with my mobile phone while I was running and they were recording the distance that I was traveling. Then that could be connected up into a map to show me where I had been, which is really interesting because otherwise I wouldn't have known where I'd, I'd been running. <laughs> okay, so that's a really interesting example isn't it? Because I doubt many people would really think of shoes as being potential Internet of Things objects, but it just goes to show anything can be, isn't it? As long as large companies see a capacity to use these sensing devices as a way of recording information, then the potential for Internet of Things is actually quite unlimited. The question now is, um, given that the technology is becoming much cheaper it's a question of where developers are sort of drawing lines I guess in terms of where to put these sensors to connect them mm. to our phones or to broader internet platforms. Yeah. Well, there's a question of where to put them and then there's the question of what to do with the information that gets gathered and well what information to gather and then what to do and that that sort of ties into some other stuff that a lot of people are quite concerned about which kind of brings me to my next question and if I can just quote from the report it says a fundamental problem with the regulation of consumer IoT devices is the current regime under the Privacy Act, the APPs, the Australian Privacy Principles and Case Law, was developed in a pre-digital era. Can you expand on that? Why does the digital era change so much when it comes to privacy? 
I think we've got to go back to 1988 when the mm-hmm. Privacy Act was originally enacted, and yeah. this predates most of the digitization that we experience today. Yeah. Yeah. Privacy was a transactional issue back then. So, you know, you went to a bank or you went to a, another business that was providing some sort of service. And in exchange for the service, you generally had to provide some sort of information in a, in a manual context or in a written form. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, digitization of information is occurring in various ways that are much more subtle and are less based around that sort of initial transaction Mm -hmm. that you have at the point where you're getting the service. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, one of the issues and the problems associated with the Internet of Things is that at the time that we make the purchase, we're not necessarily 100% sure, nor are we told about the types of information that are associated with the functionality of the device that we're purchasing. Mm -hmm. We have to go elsewhere for that information. The Mm. shop assistant might not provide or or have the knowledge or the legal requirement to provide you with all of that information there. It's not on the box, is it? They, They don't sort of put it on the packaging or anything like that. You generally find out this information when you're setting it up. Yeah. Whereas in the good old days, to use the phrase, under the transactional model, you provided the information at the time of purchase or at the time of seeking the service out. And there was written record of the information that was provided. And so really all that was required under the conventional approach to privacy was to ensure that the business or the government department that was collecting the information just had it stored securely and didn't share it indiscriminately with Mm -hmm. other people. What we're seeing today is that we're not necessarily told up front what the privacy implications are associated with the devices Mm. and services that we're purchasing. And we we often find those out later once we've either set the device up or once we've played around a little bit with the Mm. with the technology to find out what it does. Yeah. And once we've noticed that the um, technology seems to know an awful lot about us and that we're getting messages back based on information we didn't know or didn't realize we were sharing. And yet it's all just small enough things when you're going through your busy life that just aren't worth chasing down. And so it's not going to happen. And maybe that's why we need organizations, consumer organizations and so on to act on our behalf in relation to this kind of stuff, or ideally our government to be on our side and bring out some good regulation to cut this sort of stuff off at the source or control it at the source. But anyway, I wanted to come back to the difference between stuff that we access through screens and consumer IoT devices. So what are the different issues, if any, that you can see coming from the two different kinds of devices? So to use the the shoes example, the sensor that's installed in the heel of the shoe is actually communicating with the platform that is owned by the shoe manufacturer and sending information about my movements and all of the information that the platform is receiving is coming from the shoe and Mm. and the sensor within Mm. the shoe. And I think the difficulty is that when we buy the shoes, we're told that there is a sensor in the shoe, but we've got no idea what the sensor is recording Mm -hmm. until we actually set the shoes up to operate through the platform. And so the difficulty is from a consumer point of view and a purchaser's point of view is that you're you're not necessarily made aware of the extent of privacy intrusion 
associated mm. with the device when it's operating in the way that it should. You have to go elsewhere. You have to go to the screen. You mm. have to go to the platform in order to understand mm. that. Now, the difficulty with the Internet of Things, of course, is that if you're installing the sensors into all these different devices, very few of them are actually going to have screens that give you the exact information you need huh, about right. what is being taken you have to go elsewhere, which is the platform, mm -hmm. and obviously access that information elsewhere. So it's a real conundrum because we're used to having the information about the device on the device itself mm. rather than through the internet platform, which the device commonly connects to. Yeah. And I think that's the real problem with the Internet of Things in terms of consumer protection. Yeah. But I think within that framework where there's this extraction of personal information and personal data, the consumer just loses so much more than what they would receive in return under a pure transaction model which mm. is much more manual because mm. this is data about times you go out and exercise. It's about location. It's about a whole range of different nuances about your behavior. And so we're putting a lot of trust into these companies to A, keep that data secure and B, you know, not on sell it to other corporations that might want to develop other technologies that we might find entertaining or attractive. That also links us to the concepts of privacy fatigue and digital resignation that you talk about in the report. Can you explain what those are and what would be your advice to consumers and especially parents who are experiencing one or both of those things? The best way to frame privacy fatigue and digital resignation is to pose the question, who has ever read a terms of service agreement from start to finish <laughs> um, and actually can walk away from that process understanding what is going on. And mm -hmm. I think the problems associated with privacy fatigue and digital resignation is that members of the general public generally have some kind of sense that they don't want their data to be shared. They want it to be guaranteed as being secure and, mm -hmm. um, particularly from corporate actors or from government. I think general consumers are actually really concerned about the privacy implications if they're aware of what those privacy implications mm. are. But the more fine print that you've got to read, and that's part of the agreement, the less likely you are to actually assert your right to privacy, whatever mm. that might be in, yeah. in current society. What would a meaningful consent look like, do you think? Would it include things like terms of service that are more easily digested and understood? Or what else have you thought about that could be included in such a policy? One of the ways that we proposed in our IoT report is that you can potentially isolate the key elements of the privacy principles into visual images. Mm -hmm. So the use of icons is becoming much more mm -hmm. common, but it's a difficult process to actually get the direct translation from word to image. So that's kind of one way to do it, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it's the best way. Mm -hmm. There's been a subsequent report that was done by colleagues at University Technology Sydney, which was building in many respects of our initial report into IOTs. But their argument is essentially that you need to merge privacy with consumer protection, which potentially means more information up front at the point of sale. Mm -hmm. 
So that places the burden back on the retailers. Again, I'm not 100% sure that that's a good way either. I think alongside things like community education, which did come up in the UTS report, Mm -hmm. I think education helps to solve a lot of things because it actually helps to promote an understanding of how the technology works rather than just how we use the technology. So I think greater understanding of the sort of mechanics behind the way in which the technology works Mm -hmm. is is really important. Mm -hmm. But the regulatory issues are very thorny. And I think there are data protection regulations in the European Union that try to place more responsibility on corporate actors and so forth. But again, the the criminologist in me indicates that regardless of whether it's a private organisation or a governmental organization there's a lot of hacking going on Mm. and so i don't necessarily think that even if you had really robust consumer-based privacy regulations that governments or private industry actually able to ensure privacy in the ways that we we were Mm. historically accustomed to because uh, the problems of hacking are, are actually very very significant I guess a lot of people are sitting listening to this thinking, well, you know, it's a global industry. Like, How much can the Australian government do to protect Australian consumers? Do you think about that much? You can't control everything. And I think the big issue in terms of Internet of Things is that these industries are global and truly international. Mm. I suppose the question is setting standards Mm. and setting standards for how things should look in an Australian context. The other side of it, and I'm quite torn about this, the large digital manufacturing companies actually have a reasonably good track record of maintaining people's privacy, at least in terms of data security. So you don't hear of the big four tech companies, for example, which are global, having massive data security breaches. I think at one level, that's a symptom of them needing to be in compliance with various aspects of global regulation. But by the same token, I think that where consumers need greater advice, greater warning, I guess, is for devices that are not necessarily manufactured by larger companies Mm -hmm. or devices that are coming from other jurisdictions offshore where the privacy protections are not necessarily as sharp as ours, Mm. keeping in mind that ours aren't all that sharp either. (laughs) So it's a question that regulation really needs to set standards. So I'm just going to ask you this one last question. What's next in your opinion for the regulation of the Internet of Things? We're at a landmark with this because it's been left for quite a while Mm. with digitisation bubbling on in the background. But the benefit for that is that there's some really good international models to be drawing on, such as the general data protection regulation in the, the European Union. Nothing's foolproof. But at least there's a sense to which you can place significant responsibilities on corporations who are really the beneficiaries of A, accessing this data and B, marketing the technologies that collect the data. So from Mm. that point of view, I think um, there are precedents to be looking at internationally that that are going to be really useful. Great. Well, thanks for uh, chatting with me, Ian. Not a problem at all, Liz. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's about all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 14. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through Facebook or Instagram. 
Just search for Outside the Screen Pod, all one word, or you can email us at Outside the Screen Pod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming addiction on my website, cgiclinic.com, and even book an appointment for me to assess your child. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes, along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. We'd also love it if you could spread the word about the podcast among your friends and colleagues. Finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. 